Introductions can sometimes be hard. You know, sometimes introductions are just difficult when you're trying to introduce two people. You don't want to say too much. You don't want to say too little. And sometimes in introducing yourself, well, that can be a little more awkward. Maybe you know that you got a meeting coming up and you're going to be called upon to introduce yourself. And so have you ever found yourself standing in a mirror and just kind of practicing what that moment's going to be like? You just look, you say, hey, I'm Steve. Think, oh, no, 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 that won't work. That's, that's far too casual. Let me, let me try this again. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Dr. Stephen Greamy. Nah, nah, that's way too heavy, too much. And you don't want to be too casual. You don't want to be too heavy. You just want to find that right introduction. And sometimes it can be difficult. Well, this morning, we're starting a new series. It's titled, What Were You Thinking? And we're going to be looking at questions and just asking, what were you thinking about God? What were you thinking about humanity, about sin? What were you thinking about justification and sanctification, about adoption, about the church? And you know how we discover how to think rightly about all those issues? Well, it's God's word. That God's word introduces us to all of these topics and how we should think rightly so that we will live rightly in light of them. So this morning, we are jumping in right to this question, how do we think about God's word? And the Bible tells us how we should think about God's word as well as how we should think rightly about everything else. And so to help you this morning, we're going to start off right in the longest chapter in the longest book, in the longest half, very long collection of books, do you know that out of the 1,189 chapters scattered across 66 books of the Bible written over the course of two millennia, Psalm 119 is the longest. And as we'll see, it's for good reason. This particular psalm, it's an acrostic. So there's eight verses in each stanza. And each stanza, each of those eight verses, begins with the same letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And surely it is significant that this intricately, finely crafted, single-minded love poem all centers around the word of God, the Bible itself. So this morning, let's go ahead and begin with some love poetry. Psalm 119 verses 129 through 136. It's the stanza of pay from the Hebrew alphabet. It reads this, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives delight and imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as in your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people did not keep your law. I mean, this is pretty emotional stuff when you get right down to it. I mean, you look at it, this, this little stanza here, it's full of panting and longing and weeping and streams of tears. If we're honest, it almost sounds like high school love poetry. It's just this passionate sincerity in which he's writing. And he's referring to commandments and statutes. I mean, how do you have this type of passion for a precept? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And it begins with this belief, this deep conviction that God's word is true. Like the psalmist, we can trust that God's word is true. Verse 42, knowing that it's altogether true. Verse 142, 
We can't trust everything we read on the internet, for sure. We can't trust everything somebody says to us. We can't trust everything a politician tells us. We can't trust the fact checkers who check the politicians. We, we can't really trust 100% much of anything else, but we can always trust God's word, that it's always true. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, verse 89. It doesn't change. There's no limit to its perfection, verse 96. It contains nothing corrupt. All of God's righteous rules endure forever, verse 160. They never get old. They never wear out. So if you ever think to yourself that I need to know what's true about God, I need to know what's true about humanity, I just need to know what's true about life, about the future, about the world, well, then you turn to God's word because it's true. But more than simply being true, the psalmist also has this conviction that we should have as well, that the Bible demands what is right. The psalmist, he gladly acknowledges that God's right is to issue commands and that he humbly accepts all those commands as right. He says this, he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, 119 verse 75. All God's commands are sure, verse 86. All his precepts are right, verse 128. And more than simply true, more than simply demanding what is right, the Bible also provides what is good. According to verse one, uh, chapter 119, the word of God is the way of happiness, verses 1 and 2. It's the way to avoid shame, verse 6. It's the way of safety, verse 9. The way of good counsel, verse 24. The word of God gives us strength, verse 28, and hope, verse 43. It provides wisdom, verses 98 through 100. And it shows us the way that we should go, verse 105. God's word is unfailingly perfect. It always gives to us what is good. As the people of God, we believe that the word of God can be trusted in every way to speak to us what is true, demand us what is right, and provide us with what is good. And so we believe this about the Bible. But the psalmist, he lets us know that the Bible isn't simply to be believed, that it, that it actually extends further, that it should develop affections within our hearts. And so there's these feelings that the Bible should believe. You know, some of the time as Christians, we have convictions about what we should believe about the Bible. But do we have those convictions, those feelings towards the Bible that we should? And we see just in this chapter alone that the psalmist, he delights in God's word. Look at the psalmist. Testimonies, commandments, law, they were all his delight. Verses 14, 24, 47, 70, 77, 143, 174. The psalmist, he can't help but speak God's word in the deepest of emotive language. The words of scripture are sweet like honey, verse 103. The joy of his heart, verse 111. Positively wonderful, verse 129. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly, verse 167. When you delight in God's word, just look at this desire that it creates in the heart of the psalmist. He craves it. I count at least six times where this psalmist expresses his longing to keep the commands of God. It's verses 5, verse 10, verse 17, 20, 40, 131. At least 14 times where he expresses his desire to know and understand the word of God more fully. Verses 18, 19, 27, 29, 33, 34, 35, 64, 66, 73, 124, 125, 135, 169. It's true for all of us. All of our lives are animated by desire. It's literally what gets us up in the morning, what gets us going, desires, what we dream about, what we think about, what we pray about. 
And when we're free, just to have those moments, we, th- we think about our desires and what we want life to be. And the psalmist, he so desires the word of God that it, it cons- he, he considers even the sufferings in life uh, to help him if it helps him understand God's word better. You see that in verses 67 through 68 and verse 71. The psalm delighted in God's word. He desired God's word and he depended on God's word. The psalmist is constantly aware of his need of God's word. You see this throughout the psalm. I cling to your testimonies. Let me, let me not be put to shame, verse 31. He's desperate for the encouragement that's found in God's promises and rules, verses 50 and 52. Every true Christian should feel deep in his bones this utter dependence on God's revelation in the scriptures. Jesus said it this way, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. But the scripture is more than just believing. The scripture is more than just feeling. It requires action. We're actually to do something with the word of God. And therefore, the goal of this message is to get us believing what we should about God's word, feeling what we ought to about God's word, but also doing with God's word what we ought to do. In Psalm 119, it's filled with actions, telling us that the Spirit, it it prompts these in us when we rightly read and believe and feel the way we ought to about God's word. It says, here's how we should use it. We should sing God's word, verse 172. We should speak God's word, verses 13, 46, 79. We should study God's word, verses 15, 48, 97, 148. We should store up God's word or memorize it, verses 11, 93, 141. We should obey it, verses 8, 44, 57, 129, 145, 146, 167, 168. We should praise God for his word, verses 7, 62, 164, 171. And we should pray that God would act according to his word. Verses 58, 121, 123, 147, 149, 153, 1 through 160. And so with this introduction to the Bible, I want to give you four attributes for these four characteristics of scripture and and just explain briefly their importance to us. And then I want to make the case that all of those attributes, it flows from this one foundational truth about Scripture. So, the first foundational attribute, the first attribute that we should recognize about Scripture is this, that the Bible is sufficient. The Scripture contains everything we need for knowledge of salvation and for godly living. We don't need a new revelation from heaven. We don't need some special word from God. Everything we need is found in the scriptures. We must believe the Bible contains everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. Have you ever wondered if the Bible could help you with maybe some problem you're going through, if the Bible could help you with some issue you're trying to work out? Have you you ever kind of struggled with what you're supposed to do with your life? And you're just thinking, if I just had some special word from the Lord, Have you ever wanted to kind of take God's word and maybe water it down a little bit to make it a little more palatable for your situation or for the culture in which we live? Or have you ever assumed that the Bible doesn't really speak to how you should worship in a certain situation or how you should live in a certain area of your life? Have you ever felt that the Bible maybe just wasn't quite enough for living life the way it ought to be lived? If you answer yes or struggle with any of those questions, And 
at times we all really do, is, is this struggle with the sufficiency of Scripture. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, sometimes called the perfection of Scripture, means that Scripture is clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibilities to God. It's an ethical doctrine. It takes away any excuses for disobedience. We can't say that we didn't know or it wasn't clear or that we didn't understand. No, God, he revealed enough for us to be saved and he revealed enough for us to live lives that are pleasing to him. Scripture makes us competent and equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We don't need to add to it to meet today's challenges. We don't need to subtract from it to mesh with today's ideals. Uh, the word of God is perfect and complete. It gives us all we need to know about God. It gives us all we need to know about Christ, about salvation, about godliness, about how to live. As the church father Athanasius put it, he said, the sacred and divinely inspired scriptures are sufficient for the exposition of God's truth. The, the sufficiency of scripture, it undergirds the reformation cry of sola scriptura or scripture alone. This doesn't mean that we try to approach the Bible without help of good teachers or scholarly resources or tested doctrinal formulas or things like this. No, those can be helpful. Alone does not mean by itself. That would be solo scriptura. No, apart from any communal or confessional considerations, it doesn't mean that. But it means that scripture alone is the final authority. It means that scripture alone is the deciding factor. Everything must be tested against the word of God. Tradition does not have an equal role with the Bible and, and understanding truth. Uh, rather, tradition has conformity or illuminating, supportive role to play. It can, it, can, it can be a help, but it's not the determining factor. No, Scripture is that. And so we can't accept certain different doctrinal twists or things like this because they don't align with Scripture. Scripture alone is sufficient, not tradition, not our ideals. It's Scripture alone that's sufficient. The second attribute of Scripture that I want to take us through is the attribute of clarity. The saving message of Jesus Christ and how we ought to live is plainly taught in Scripture. And it can be, hear, her, it can be understood by all who have ears to hear it. Uh, we don't need some official magisterium to come and to tell us what the Bible means. We don't need a pope or a priest or someone to do that. Uh, um, a, a church leader can be helpful. A friend can be helpful. But we don't need it. This means, this, this attribute of clarity means that ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observed for them to be faithful Christians. We must believe that the scripture can be clearly understood for us to be faithful Christians. Now, it's worth pointing out several nuances to this attribute. It is true that some portions of scripture are clearer than others. Not, not every passage has a simple or obvious meaning. Some takes a little more digging. The main things we need to know, the main things we need to believe, the main things we need to do, they are clearly seen in the Bible. Though the most essential doctrines are not equally clear in every passage. But they are all made clear somewhere in Scripture. 
that which is necessary for our salvation, that which is necessary for godly living, it can be understood even by the uneducated, provided that they make use of ordinary means to study and learn from God's word. The most important points of the scriptures may not be understood perfectly, but they can be understood sufficiently. And yes, it's, it's sometimes helpful and often helpful to have friends along with us to study God's word together. But the clarity of scripture, it's one of those doctrines that you don't really miss it, well, until you don't have it anymore, until it's gone. The doctrine of clarity in, of Scripture insists that even the simplest can understand God's word and be saved. Without this doctrine, you would have to wonder, well, is the Bible only for pastors and priests? Can just ordinary people understand the sacred scriptures? Do you need to be a scholar to understand God's word? Do you have a, need to have a working knowledge of Greek or Hebrew? Do you need to understand Second Temple Judaism or Greco-Roman customs? Do you have to understand ancient Near East religion or redaction criticism or source criticism or form criticism? I mean, you almost have to wonder, is God a God for only like really, really smart and educated people? And what kind of God would reveal his love and redemption in terms so technical and concepts so profound that only an elite core of professional scholars could understand them? R.C. Sproul posed that question. William Tyndale, in the 15th century, he was often maligned and in danger for his efforts to translate God's word into just the ordinary language of the day, the common language of the people. On one occasion, when he was in a dispute with an educated person, he replied, If God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of Scripture than you do. What he's expressing there is the confidence and the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. It would ultimately cost Tyndale his, his life. He died by strangulation and his corpse was then burned in the city square. But fittingly, as he was being burned there, uh, he cried out these last words with, a, with a, uh, a loud voice, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Yes, we agree, don't we? Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes to see the power and privilege we have of reading your scriptures. Open our eyes that we can read it in a language that we understand. Open our eyes to behold the wonderful things of your law. Open our eyes to see the truth that you've clearly laid before us. God has made it plain to all of us, only if we have the eyes to see. The third attribute of scripture is that scripture is authoritative. The last word always goes to the word of God. We must never allow the teachings of science, human experience, church councils to take precedence over the scripture. We must believe that scripture is the final authority over our lives. If you've ever wondered why professing Christians come to such wildly different theological conclusions, at least part of the answer, the biggest part in fact, has to do with the question of authority. There's three main branches of Christendom in the West that people would cling to anyway. And those are traditional Roman Catholic, uh, liberal Protestant, and evangelical. Uh, and the main thing that divides them, really, when you get right down to the heart of it, is how to adjudicate competing truth claims. See, we don't answer the question, what has the ultimate authority in the same way? Every Christian acknowledges 
that in some sense our theology and our ethics must accord with scripture. But when push comes to shove and theological wrangling, to whom or to what do we appeal in our closing arguments is different. I, I want to point this out to you and, and, because it is very important. Catholics, they cling to tradition. Above all else, it is tradition that has the final authority that is on par, even above scripture. For liberal Protestants, scripture must align with reason and experience. That that has the final authority, reason and experience. But for evangelicals, it is the word of God that stands outside, over, and above all of the church, all of human experience, all of reason, all of tradition. You understand, all of our, all of our disagreements with, with Catholics, with liberal Protestants, it, it all stems from our conviction about the authority of scripture. If the Bible is not authoritative, then God is not authoritative. If God is not authoritative, then that means man is authoritative. And if man is authoritative, then beliefs, right, wrongs, standards, everything, they're always open for change because we change as human beings. But if God is authoritative, then his word must be authoritative, which means that he and his word is the final authority for what to believe and how to behave. That leads, really, to this fourth attribute of God's word, which is that the Bible is necessary. General revelation is not enough to save us. We cannot know God in a salvific sense by means of per personal experience and human reason or tradition. We need God's word to tell us how to live, who Christ is, what sin does, and how we're to be saved. We must believe that we need God's word for life and salvation. The doctrine of the necessity of scripture, it reminds us of our predicament that the one we need to know cannot be discovered on our own and it assures us also of a solution and that is this, that the sinless one has made himself known through his word. It's through his word that we know him. The scriptures, the, the, the spectacles, the lenses through which we see God. And we cannot truly know God. We cannot truly know his will. We cannot truly know the way of salvation apart from the Bible. We need the scripture to live the life that God intends for us to live. We need the scripture to live forever. Uh, Peter, he asked the question, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's, there's no other book like the Bible. It reveals a different kind of wisdom. It comes from a different source. It tells of a different love. The, the word of the world, well, it's not like the word of God. It's, it's completely different, actually. One is new and now, and the other is ancient and everlasting. One is fleeting, and it's doomed to pass away, 1 Corinthians 2.6, while the other is fixed and is decreed before the ages, 1 Corinthians 2.7. If we want the wisdom of passing fashions, if we want impressive knowledge, if we want talented people, well, we can look to the world for that, sure. But if we want, and if we truly need a wisdom that is beyond us, that is outside of us, that will never fail us, that will never, never infringe upon us, then we must look to the things that God has revealed to us through his spirit in his word, 1 Corinthians 2.10. People, they talk about spirituality as if it's something that you just generate yourself, as if you really concentrate a lot, you can become a really spiritual person. If you just, it comes from within you, you just think about God a lot, and then, well, you become the spiritual person. But true spirituality, 
is not something that's found from within us. It's not something that we can generate. It is something outside of us entirely. It's created by the agency of God's transcendent Holy Spirit. And you understand, we need the Spirit who is from God if we are to understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.12. And where do we go to hear from God's Spirit? Well, to those who are entrusted to be the very mouthpiece of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13, to those who reveal to us and who wrote the very oracles of God, Romans 3, 2, to those who have written down what God himself has breathed out, 2 Timothy 3, 16. So this is the necessity of scripture in a nutshell, that we need the revelation of God to know God and the only sure, saving, final, perfect revelation from God is found in the scriptures. See, if you want to know what you should believe about the scriptures and how we should think rightly about the scriptures, these four attributes, it comes with this simple acronym, SCAN. Sufficiency, clarity, authority, necessity. You could rearrange those if you want and kind of switch out the words a little and summarize it this way. God's word is final. God's word is understandable. God's word is necessary. And God's word is enough. Now, Why did the Bible have these characteristics? It all stems back to one foundational truth, and that is God's word is inspired. In other words, God's word is God's word. It all derives from God. It all comes from God because God's word is inspired. Well, because of God's very character, then it is inerrant. Because God's word is inspired, then because of God's word and his character, then God's word is final. Because God's word is inspired, therefore, because of the character of God, God's word is sufficient. Because God's word is inspired, then God's word, by because of God's very nature, it is authoritative. Because God's word is inspired, then because of God's very nature, God's word will be clear. Because God's word is inspired, then by its very nature, because of God's very nature, God's word must be necessary. These are the words of truth. This is the word of life. These words are never failing. They're never falling. These are Christ-exalting, spirit-inspired, God-breathed words of the Holy Scripture. And we stick with the Scripture. And maybe it seems like a light thing now. Maybe it seems like, well, oh, I got more important things to do with life. I just don't have time for God's word. But one day, we will feel the weight of it all. Because there will come a time when it will be shown whether our lives were found on the trivialities of this world or they were found on the realities of God's word. You know, when you think rightly about God's word, then you can't help but have that same desire, those same beliefs, those same feelings, those same behaviors as the psalmist. You, you delight in it. You depend on it. You desire it. God's word will become like that emotional love poem that we cling to because it introduces us to the lover of our souls. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. God, may we not, may we not take that lightly because God, your word, it is sufficient. It is clear. It is authoritative. It is necessary. For God, we thank you that it is the word of God that equips the people of God to do the work of God. So may we cling to it with all of our lives. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.